welcome to part four of a series about the Bible. Um, that's a little bit different than most of the series we do. Most of the series we're teaching from the Bible or we're teaching a biblical principle or we're bringing the Bible to bear on current events. And this one's a little bit different. We're actually focusing in on the Bible itself. Um, we're in the weeks past here, we're in part four of the series. In weeks past, we've compared the Bible to other ancient documents. We've explored the Bible's origins. We've tested the Bible's accuracy, and if we're looking ahead a little bit, here's a sneak preview of what's to come. Next week, we're going to take a closer look at how every book in this book points to Christ. That song we just sang, Jesus Be the Center, that's not just something we say. That is something that the Bible itself testifies to. It's, it's throughout there from beginning to end. And uh, in the two weeks, we're going to discuss the Bi some of the Bible's hard sayings, some of the Bible's apparent contradictions. We're going to go there in a couple weeks. And then when we close out this series, we're going to try the best we can to give you some real practical tools. We've been talking um, throughout the series about some resources that are listed there in your yellow sheet, uh, some different resources we recommend. We'll, we'll dive into those a little bit more. So that's where we've been. That's where we're going. What we're going to try to do today as best we can is wrestle with this concept called the authority of Scripture. That's what we're going to try to wrestle with today. And that, that really is the centerpiece of this series that we're in. Why is it, out of all of the documents that have ever been written in human history, what is it about these 66 books that we say, hey, these are the authoritative ones? These are the ones that we look to more than any other. You know, why, why not the works of C.S. Lewis? You know, why don't we look at those the same way and hold those in the same regard? This great Christian author. Um, why not the Left Behind series? Right? Anyone ever read any of those? <laughs> Uh, all right, some of those. Why don't we look at those as authoritative? Or the works of St. Augustine or Luther or Calvin. Why not the latest from Beth Moore or Joyce Meyer or Joel Olstein or Rick Warren? What is it about the 66 books included in our Bible in the Old and New Testaments? Why these? Why are these looked at as so authoritative? Well, that's a question we're going to wrestle with over the next 34 minutes. I better get going. Let's dive right in. I encourage you to start right here inside your bulletin. There's a green sheet. Let's pull it out. I want to try to make four main points today. I want to try to give you four takeaways beyond all others. Here's the first one that I, that I want to make here. And that is the God of the Bible is a God who speaks. I, should, I could say the God of the Christians is a God who speaks. God is a God who speaks. And many of you have heard some of these stories before that have shaped me. That's why I share them often. Um, I remember one of the times where I heard God speak. In fact, it's my first conscious memory of hearing God speak to me in a personal way. And I was in high school, and I was cleaning out a bus. I had volunteered to help on a retreat with some younger kids. And a guy named Roger Twito, my youth director, he pulled me aside and he said, God has called you into church ministry. And as much as I tried to disregard what he said, write it off, as much as I tried to explain it away, as much as I tried to run from it, there was something about those words that came out of a human mouth that were different than other words that I had heard him say or others had, say, had said. Something about that deep in my soul said, God said this. So sometimes God speaks. He, he speaks through human voices, but God doesn't need human voices. Another one of the, the events that shaped me, a time when I realized I heard God's voice, I was 20, let me write down, because I 
I'd written this down to get the facts straight here. I was 26 years old. I was a youth director. I was serving in First United Methodist in New Ulm, Minnesota, right there in the center of center in Broadway, as middle of the town as you could get. It was June 4th, 1995. It was Pentecost Sunday. And I'm sitting in this little church, and something just inside of me said, North Heights, North Heights, North Heights. It's a church that I had interned at in college, but a church I hadn't been connected with for four years. And so I just, North Heights, where is that coming from? You know where that is. He, Rick knows where that is. So, so I'm like, okay, I had at least learned enough in my 26 years to say I've got to follow up on this. And so I went home and I prayed about it. And I said, let me call one of my friends from North Heights. I tried calling a guy named Dave Bowler, got his wife on the phone. And I said, this is going to sound weird. But is there anything going on with the youth ministry there at North Heights Church? To which Lori said, ah! And I said, what does that mean? And she says, we have an opening. In our youth ministry here at North Heights, we haven't even advertised it yet. And one of the things that we started doing was praying and saying, God, would you put on the heart of the people that you want to apply? You haven't heard that story? Wow, I've told this thing so many times. It, 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 it infected me. So, so on my way up, it was really strange because it gets even more specific than this. On my way up, I said, I'd like to pursue this position. I'd like to apply for this position. I'm on my way up, and something in me said, it's going to be junior high, junior high, junior high, which is really weird because the opening was in senior high, a senior high youth position. Well, in the process of me coming up, this junior high position opened up. God had spoken to me, not, this time not through a human voice, but just through what some people call a prompting or a leading uh, or an impression. God is a God who speaks. And these two ways aren't the only way that God speaks. He speaks in a variety of ways. Here's just some of them that came to my mind. I wrote them down in your notes. Sometimes he speaks through a divine utterance. I've never heard one of these, but I've, I've, I've talked to people that, that ha they've heard an audible voice. Turned out to be the voice of God. Through human voices, I mentioned that one. Through prophetic actions, you might want to look that one up. That was an interesting way for God to speak. Um, through internal impressions, promptings, leadings, I just gave that example. Here's number five. Through preaching and teaching. Through Christian preaching and teaching, God speaks through that. Through his creation in his activity in it, God speaks through his creation. God speaks through angelic messages, through dreams, through visions. And God spoke definitively through Jesus of Nazareth. Let's take a look at that one. Um, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to uh, John chapter 1. This is familiar to most of you, but for some of you, you may never have heard of this connection between Jesus and the Word of God. There is a, a connection, in fact, an individual, indivisible connection between Jesus and the Word of God. It says this in John chapter 1. Oh, I want to let you know, too, before I forget. Uh, we believe so strongly the Bible is God's Word that we, we have a stack of them at that table. At that table, every Sunday, they're there for you to just take as a gift um, for you to, to bring home. All right, here we go. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 1 says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Great job, Rick. And if we jump ahead to verse 14, listen to this. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word of God was personified, literally, in Jesus of Nazareth. This theme is picked up by the author of Hebrews, who writes this in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 2. In the past... God spoke 
to our ancestors through prophets and at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir over all things, through whom he also made the universe. Our God is a God who speaks. And when God speaks, it's different than other speech. His word has power. It has authority. Take a look at this uh, testimony from Psalm 33, 6. It says this, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Which is just really interesting, the, the, the spoken word, but also the word which we saw has an interesting relationship with creation. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. They're starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. I did a brief word study this week, pun intended, and it was fascinating. Fascinating. Never done a word study on the word word from the scriptures before. It was interesting. They've got at least two different Greek words that are translated into the English word word, and there's several Hebrew words that are translated into the English word word. So when you see the English word word, which is really awkward phrase to say, when you see the English word word, it could be a number of different Hebrew or Greek words. Um, here's the one that really caught my attention. Dabar or dabars. Dabars. That's probably how it's pronounced. Um, dabars. Uh, dabar applies to a spoken word or written communication. But look at this. It usually means matter or a thing. And that fits right in with an ancient understanding in that area of words. In the ancient worlds, words were considered weighty. They had power. It was like they were matter. It was like the words were a thing. You could speak a blessing, and it had power. You could speak a curse, and it had power. Words were understood to be powerful. They weren't just thoughts that were expressed through sounds. They weren't just thoughts that were expressed on paper. Words were thought to have a matter-like quality to them. Consider how the word of God is treated in passages like these. Here's a couple more, one from Deuteronomy, one from Isaiah. Look at this. These are not just idle words for you, the scripture says. They're your life. These aren't just sounds. These aren't just scribbles on a paper. These, these are your life. And look what it says here, Isaiah 48. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever, not just echoes forever, not just will be um, repeated forever. It, it stands forever. It's weighty. It's, it, it's got a, a matter-like substance to it. Well, we started a list earlier. I got us to number eight. In your notes, it goes to number nine. Here's number nine. The God of the Bible, he's a God who speaks. He speaks through the Holy Scriptures. He speaks through the Bible. The, 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 the God that the Bible testifies to speaks through those scriptures. God's one-of-a-kind authoritative word, his eternal and powerful and life-giving, life-changing, history-shaping word. It's in play in the Holy Scriptures. Jesus of Nazareth, he referred to scripture. He read scripture. He quoted scripture. He abided by scripture. He taught people the meaning of scripture. And most importantly, he fulfilled scripture. And in Luke 16, here's one that we circle back to a lot because this one just fascinates me. This Luke 16 passage. In this passage, Jesus is telling a story. And he's telling the story of this rich man who dies. And this rich man dies, and he's in hell, and he's in torment, and he's in agony. And this rich man looks up, and he sees Abraham. 
and he sees that he can't get to Abraham, and he'll never be able to get to Abraham. So he says to Abraham, Abraham, I got five brothers. Could you send them a sign that would warn them that they don't want to end up here where I am? Can you send them a convincing sign, something that'll get them to change their ways, something that'll get them to turn from sin, turn towards you? Can you send them the most convincing thing that I can think of? I know, bring someone back from the dead. If you do that, if you bring someone back from the dead, they will be convinced, they will turn from their ways. To which Abraham replies in the story told by Jesus. Abraham says this, Luke 16, 31. Abraham says to the rich guy, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't even be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Do you catch the significance of these words? This is a story Jesus of Nazareth told in one of history's most thoroughly vetted accounts. Jesus of Nazareth, the word made flesh, says this. He says, the book of Leviticus, these are my words, not the scripture's words. The book of Leviticus will speak to the sincere God seeker with the same authority as their own personal equivalent of a Jacob Marley Christmas carol visit. That's what they say. Now, for the record, does God speak through other books? Yes, he does. Many of you have had that experience where God has spoke, you're reading a different book, God, hey, God is speaking to me through this other book. He does that, but I love how the ESV Study Bible puts it. In uh, one of the resources that's on your yellow sheet is the ESV Study Bible. Here's what it says in their intro. I love how they put the difference between the words recorded in Scripture and other people's words. They say this, ESV Study Bible contains two kinds of words. The first kind are the actual words of the Bible, which are the very words of God to us. They are printed in the larger font at the top of each page. The second kind, they're the study notes. They're merely human words. They're printed in the smaller font at the bottom of each page. The difference in font sizes serves to remind readers that the word of the Bible itself are infinitely more valuable than the words of these notes. The words of the Bible, they're the words of our Creator speaking to us. They're completely truthful. They're pure. They're powerful. And they are wise and righteous. God's people should read these words with reverence and awe, with joy and delight. Through these words, God gives us eternal life and daily nourishes our spiritual lives in the present world. The words of the study notes, hey, they're useful. They help to explain the words of the Bible, but they must never become a substitute for the Bible itself. Can I get an amen? That is so well said. That is good. The words of the Bible, that's the big font. That's the big font words. All of their documents, all of their size are just different size fonts. Can God speak through the smaller fonts? Yes course, but please write this down. The Word of God is uniquely present in the canon of Scripture, in, in, in the documents that we've identified as coming from God. This is the second of the four things that I hope you go, with, go home with this morning. That God's Word, it's, it isn't limited to the Bible. If you, if you refer to the Bible as God's Word, you're, you're making a true statement, right? You're making a true statement. But the Word of God is more than that. 
The Word of God is, is present, uniquely present in the Scriptures. The Bible is God's Word, just not in an exclusive sense. The Word of God is more than that. It's Jesus of Nazareth, these other things that we talked about. There is a presence that's present in these ancient texts. The Word of God is present in these documents, and they have the power. They have the power to convict hearts of sincere God-seekers. There's a power that we saw this last week inspired a Persian king named Cyrus to rebuild the temple at Jerusalem. They have the power to bless, the power to curse, The Old Testament, those words had the power to make a nation rise or fall. That's power. And that same presence that is present in the Old Testament was also present in the early church and in their message. Consider these words from the Apostle Paul. This is from 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5, and chapter 2, verse 13. Here's what it says. Our gospel, which is a word for the good news, our good news, our message of what God did in and through Christ, our gospel came to you not simply with words. It also came with power. It came with the Holy Spirit. It came with deep conviction. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is. The word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. There is a presence that was and is uniquely present in these documents in a way that's not present in others. It was present not just in those words but that are written down, but in the words of those early evangelists. The word of God was at work in their lives and in their message. If you want to take a deeper dive in these waters, which I'd encourage you to do than we have time for today, there's a great book by N.T. Wright called Scripture and the Authority of God. It's on your yellow sheets. If you want to dive deeper into this idea, I would encourage you to do so. It's a great, great, great book. Not necessarily easy reading, but a great, great, great book. Um, I also put some more quotes in your purple sheet. Again, these are new quotes, not to be mistaken, from the last two purple sheets that you got uh, some new quotes along these lines. All right, well, here's one of the things that N.T. Wright says as he's talking about the authority of Scripture. He says this in his book. He says, here are the roots, these things we talk about, this idea that the presence of God was present in, in the early evangelists, in their works, in their words, in their lives. Here are the roots of a fully Christian theology of scriptural authority planted firmly in the soil of that missionary community. This word of God, it confronted the powers of the world with the news of the kingdom of God. It refreshed, it invigorated by the Spirit. It was growing through the preaching and teaching of the apostles, bearing fruit in the transformation of human lives as the start of God's project to put the whole cosmos to rights. God accomplishes these things, so the early church believed, through the word. The story of Israel, not told Now told, it should say, if we can fix that one for the next one, now told as reaching its climax in Jesus. Okay, here's what he's saying. What he's saying is people began to recognize early on, very early on, that the word of God was present in the documents that we now call the New Testament. All right, which brings us to the third of the four ideas that I hope you take home with you today. Here's the third of the fourth ideas. Authority wasn't ascribed to a particular collection of documents in the 4th and 5th century as much as the authority of a particular collection of documents was reaffirmed. Scripture doesn't have authority because a group of men in the 4th or 5th century said so. 
That is a shallow pool, shallow end, kiddie pool understanding of the Scripture's authority. We don't believe as, as Christians that, that the Bible has authority because a group of men in the 4th of the century said, yep, these are the ones, everybody, for all time. And all. They didn't declare it. They affirmed it. They reaffirmed that there is a presence in these texts, and it wasn't original to them. This is what the, the, the church had been teaching for forever. As you'll see for yourself in just a moment, the 4th and 5th century councils that affirmed the authority of these 66 books, they were just reaffirming what the people of God had been experiencing for generations. The early church was a scripture-reading community, and these 66 books in our Bibles, they were their scriptures. This was the history. These were the songs. These were the stories. These were the poetic works. This was the prophecy. This was the wisdom that the early church ordered their entire lives around. They converted Rome with these texts, which is amazing in and of itself. These are the documents that changed the world, and they're still changing the world. There is a power that is uniquely present within them. There were other writings that were available to the early church, but none of them carried the same authority. These were the big font, make sure you say that slow, these were the big font documents. Consider this quote. Look at how they understood the scriptures, the word of God. Look at this. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. This is the Apostle Paul saying these things. And again, this is coming from a man who clearly heard from God, whose God's power was clearly present in his life. Okay? He, he says this. He says, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. I looked that one up. This is interesting. That word tamper is the same word, if you go back into Greek, the, the Greek word you translate here is tamper. It's the same word you would use to describe how a corrupt wine merchant would dilute his wine. Paul's saying don't do that with the word of God. You don't water this down. You don't dilute it. You don't add something else to it and call it God's word. This is God's word. There's his, his power, his presence is uniquely there. There's a warning here from the first century from a man named Paul who, again, he was clearly called. He was clearly empowered. God clearly spoke to this man. And his warning is this. Don't water down these words. Don't cut any of them out. Don't add anything that you're also going to call scripture. And there's an unbroken reverence when you look at history. One of the accounts that I came across in my research for this series was uh, an event that happened uh, with a man named Tertullian. He was a second century church leader, and he heard, he caught wind, that an elder in a church had made this document that he called Third Corinthians. And what did Tertullian do when he heard that? He said, you're, you're out. You're out. That elder got canned. Because he tried to tamper with God's word. He tried to say, there's a third Corinthians. There was no third Corinthians. At least that wasn't it if there was one, right? It wasn't okay to tamper with these words. And if you choose to explore the Bible for yourself, which I hope you will, you're going to come across scholars who are going to challenge the authority of these documents. And they're going to challenge the authority on philosophical grounds, and they're going to challenge the authority on literary, literary grounds. Here's an example of that, one of the things I came across uh, in my research. A guy named John Barton, he's an Oxford professor. He said this, he said, even for us, 
After several centuries of detailed textual study, it is not possible to say with certainty whether 1st and 2nd Timothy, which claim to be by Paul, are genuine or not, though there is a broad consensus that they probably aren't. All right? Let me unpack this a little bit. The first thing that, that stands out to me are those words, even for us. Is it just me or does that sound condescending? Even for us. What, what, what I think he's saying, and I, I could be wrong in this, and it, it, I think what he's saying is even for us who know more now than those first century folks, than those second century folks, than those third century folks, than those fourth century folks, than those fifth, even us who now understand textual criticism better, even for us, there's, there's, there's no certainty that Paul wrote these things. So to which I would say, well, that sounds arrogant to me that you claim to be a better scholar than those scholars? Okay, so that was the first thing that jumped out to me. The second one is this. Do you notice he says there's a broad consensus among scholars that Paul didn't write these things? Who, who did he poll? Because I could take you to a library right down the road, and I could show you hundreds of books from hundreds of scholars who disagree with him. So I don't know who his broad consensus is. And not only that, let's go back in history. Let me show you something here. Let, let's go to the next slide. Take a look at this. Th this isn't something new. This idea of First and Second Timothy being genuine, being authoritative, being the word of God. Look at this. Here are some sources from the first century going into the second century. Here's seven of them. The first one cites Second Timothy, the next one cites 1 Timothy. The next one cites 1 Timothy. The next one cites both. The next one cites 1 Timothy. The next one cites both. Let's go on. Here's some more that come a little later. This Clement of Alexandria named 1 Timothy as authentic. Tertullian, he cited both. Origen cited both. Tenth, the, the Cyril of Jerusalem, he named both as authentic. We're not done. Here's another guy. He named both as authentic. Jerome named both as authentic. Augustine named both as authentic. We're not done. Here are, two, are four canons, meaning here are four lists, early lists from different centuries where they light out and say, hey, these are the, these are the word of God here. The moratorium named first and second as, as authentic. The uh, apostolic uh, canon named them as authentic. That one that I'm not even going to try to pronounce named as authentic. And, and the fourth one did too. And we're not done. Here are, here are two ancient translations, one from around the year 200, one from around the four, year 400, in languages other than Hebrew, other than Greek, naming First and Second Timothy as authentic. We're not done. There were these four councils where godly men got together, the ones that you hear about. But that comes later. So again, when, when a, a, a scholar, with all due respect, like John Barton, says there's a consensus among scholars that First and Second Timothy aren't authentic, challenge that. Do your homework and see who the scholars were who disagreed, including scholars who were much closer to the action. But beyond that, beyond that, what... And it's fair to say this. What pains me is that this Oxford professor who studied these scriptures probably more than I have, that he doesn't just know, that he doesn't recognize 
that there's nothing in him that says, there's something here. It pains me that he hasn't had those moments that many of us had with First and Second Timothy. We're reading these texts and we're saying, God's speaking to me through these in a way that he isn't speaking through the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, through these other ancient documents. As we bring today's teaching to a close, I want to circle back where we started. I opened the first of the claims that I made the first of the things that I said, this would be a great takeaway, is this, that the Bible, God of the Bible is a God who speaks. I believe that to be true. I believe that I experienced myself. And that begs the question as we come to a close here, how do you know if you're hearing from God? You know, how do you know? Um, if, if, if you hear human words that seem to have a different resonance to them, is there some kind of test or some kind of filter that you can use to say, you know, these might be from God? If you have an impression inside, if you're feeling something, um, or, or thinking something that, that's burning within you, you can't get past it. Is there some sort of standard that you can measure up against to say this is no way this is from God, or maybe it is? If you have a dream, if you have a vision, how do you know that, that it's not just an extended layover in Colorado talking? How, how do you know this might be from God, right? This could be it. Well, learning how to discern his voice takes time. But a great starting point is this. A great starting point is this. Here's the fourth of the four takeaways that we have time for this morning. I believe with all my heart that the Bible provides a standard for belief and conduct that we can measure all other revelations up and against. That we have a collection of documents that have been tested and proven true to the people of God, the sincere seekers. And proven true not just because they said so, but because proven true through their actions, through the power of God working through them as well as today. God still speaks. And we've got a standard that we can compare things up and against. Its authority has been tested and affirmed by God's seekers from generation to generation. The words in the Bible, they're the big font words. And the others, although God can use them, they're in a smaller font. These are the big font dreams and visions and stories and songs and poems and angelic proclamations that we can measure all others up and against. Whew, did it. We still have time even to pray. How about that, huh? All right, let's pray. Would you please stand with me? And I want to pray a blessing over you as we go our separate ways. Father, as I try to remember to do frequently, I ask for your forgiveness for... Um, words that have come from my mouth, fallible words that either had a, um, that had anything of them that weren't of you. Lord, I pray that your spirit will go beyond that and speak to, to hearts through your living word. Lord, I pray that you would, you'd speak to those who aren't yet able to trust the Bible as your word, that, that you would stir up something within them that would draw them deeper into your words, maybe giving it a second look or a third look or a fourth look. And Lord, I pray, just, I mean, just as we pray for John Barton, we pray that they would meet you in all of these texts. And Lord, we pray for those of us who acknowledge with our lips that this is your word. We pray, Lord, that through the power of your spirit at work within us, that our lives would testify to that more and more by our choices, by the way you're transforming us, and by the way through us you're transforming this world. Would you bless us in these ways as we go forth from this place in Jesus' name?
Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.